the prep work that's required to set up a thoughtful conversation or even to give a family an update on a given day is requiring a lot of coordination. We can imagine a whole variety of situations. The patient's not fully cognitively aware. There's language barriers. The interpreter wasn't available. No family members are in the hospital. Add in when the patient can't participate. That's Dr. Andy Lawton, a palliative care attending at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's pointing out just a few of the ways in which goals of care conversations have changed in the world of COVID-19. With all of these points, all these um, spots where things can get mixed up, there's real opportunity for people to not hear information correctly or to, you know, the game of telephone doesn't get to the sister. Um, so I think the whole virtual world with COVID has made this more challenging and we have to be extra proactive in setting things up. Families can't be with their loved ones. Patients are terrified of dying alone. You're often having these conversations in PPE where nonverbals can't be seen. And on top of these new challenges that COVID has brought is just the actual challenges of having a goals of care discussion. These conversations can be quite tricky in and of itself to navigate. And this communication is a skill like any procedure, right? It requires that prep work up front. When you expect the conversation, you have to think, so how do I explain the situation? How do I uh, summarize the medical condition? If they ask me that question, how should I answer? How should I phrase it? So you have to do this. That's Dr. Nakagawa, a director of inpatient palliative care consult services at Columbia University. Unfortunately, though, I feel like a lot of times, instead of a goals of care conversation, we often just kind of like throw a question about code status at the end of an H&P convo, like something to the effect of, I asked this to all my patients, but if there were to be an emergency, what would you like? Do you want chest compressions? Do you want us to try a breathing tube? But with COVID, doing advanced care planning is now front and center of our conversation. And with that, welcome to a special episode on Core IM on inpatient goals of care discussions during the time of COVID-19. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi, an internist at NYU, and to help me tackle this topic, I'm joined by... Hey, I'm Dr. Amrapali Maitra, a second-year internal medicine resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She also is a PhD in anthropology. (laughs) (laughs) That basically means I'm fascinated by the culture of medicine and in how people communicate. So... We know that goals of care conversations are a huge source of moral distress right now for clinicians during COVID. Where the stakes are high, there's so little time to get to know your patients or build trusts with families, and the possibility of rapid respiratory deterioration gives these conversations an added layer of urgency. Exactly. In addition to that kind of pace and urgency is just the fact that most our list, I would say maybe half or more of our list nowadays, needs either kind of a reassessment of goals of care or an update. And it's just that sheer volume of goals of care conversations we're having on a daily basis can be quite draining. So how do we do this all and cope? Yeah, it's a lot. An important thing to remember in all of this is that we're not alone. We need to lean on each other to debrief and even consult palliative care or ethics if needed. Yeah. And I think the other thing we need to acknowledge up front is like, even with the best communication skills, you might leave a family meeting feeling, ugh, you know, I really tried my best, but I still don't think we're doing what makes sense medically for this patient. I think that's just the tough nature of this work. But at least we can be humble and try to do our best to improve our communication skills around these high stake conversations. Hopefully, we will leave you feeling empowered with specific language 
around these time-sensitive and emotionally challenging conversations. First, we will go through the three different types of conversations you might find yourself having during COVID. And from the two palliative care experts you just heard, we will highlight their approaches to these conversations. Then we'll jump into some of the more challenging aspects around goals of care. And number three, share a few other tips around goals of care right now. Before we get into the nitty gritty of goals of care with COVID, one unfortunate thing that's happening right now is that patients are coming to the hospital struggling to breathe and without their families. So we need to ask them right away, who will speak for you? Yeah, absolutely. Ask right away about their proxy before it's too late. And for example, you realize that the emergency contact in the chart is actually inaccurate and outdated. Another good question to ask up front is if they have a phone charger or an iPad to talk to their loved ones. It also just kind of gives you a good heads up of how much you're going to be conveying to the loved ones about how sick the patient is. Just one other challenge in the world of COVID because families can't be in the hospital, at least for most of our hospitals. So lots to think about in advance. So where do we even begin once we get to the conversation? Great question. Dr. Lawton and his colleagues describe three types of conversations. They don't all happen at once. They may not even all happen with the same patient, but they represent the three types of discussions you might engage in. So to lay out how he thinks about these types of conversations, conversation one is a version of breaking bad news. This is really like getting a patient's understanding and then giving your hopes and concerns. Conversation two is the meaty part. This is the heart of goals of care discussions where you explore patients' values. And conversation three is if and when a patient is dying. Great. So getting started with the first type of conversation, Dr. Lawton begins by asking patients or families about what they've been told about their illness. This is especially relevant now since families may be hearing from, say, a rotating resident one day, someone else covering the other day, a nurse another time. So all the more reason to check in in terms of what they've heard and understood thus far. I'm one of the doctors. I'm one of the clinicians taking care of your mom. Um, what's your sense of uh, what's going on with her? I know a lot has been going on. I know a lot has changed pretty quickly. Tell me what you've heard most recently. Like what, bring me up to speed on how clear we've been communicating with you so I can know where to start from. I can't tell you the number of times I've gotten into trouble when I didn't start by asking about a patient's understanding. Maybe I was worried it would take too long. And then I often found myself backtracking in the middle of like a 30-minute goals of care conversation to say, hey, hey, wait a minute, let's just make sure we're all on the same page about your loved one's illness. I think it can be pretty quick too. This isn't, this is a step that shouldn't take more than a minute or two. And this can actually save you time. So after we get a sense of what the patient understands or what the family understands, we can then share our concerns and using language around hope and worry can be quite helpful. I really hope we're going to use our treatments here and see you get better over the next couple of days, get you to a place where you can go home. I'm also worried that I've taken care of patients and things can change quickly. It is possible that you could get sicker even quickly from this infection. And I want us to be aware of that possibility and think about it together so we can provide you with the best possible care. I really like how he gives kind of this best case hope scenario and also a worst case scenario. In that way, it might not overwhelm the patient or family as much. I can easily see myself falling in the trap of only talking about the worst case scenario, especially after days in New York City where all you hear overhead is rapid response, codes, you know, every 30 minutes or so. 
I can find myself easily in a conversation where all I need from the conversation is decision about CPR, intubation, ICU transfer. And it's just so easy to want to talk about that worst case. Totally. We also asked Dr. Lawton to play out a scenario where you're inheriting a patient later in their hospitalization and picking up these conversations. She's been in the ICU for about a week now, and it's helpful to understand what you've heard from our team so far. I want to share with you that I continue to be really worried about her, and I'm in fact more worried today than I was a week ago. I'm worried she's getting sicker more quickly, and we really do have to think together about the possibility that things are getting worse and she could even pass soon. She could even die soon from this infection. And you may stop there and then just respond to whatever emotion is likely to come up. I can imagine that this is scary to think about. I can only imagine how difficult it is to not be able to be here with her. And I really wish that that was different. So after doing that groundwork with the first type of conversation, by getting patients understanding and stating your concerns, sometimes you end there, or you may pick up with the second conversation. The nice thing about this framework is you can titrate these conversations depending on the patient in front of you and all of the other things you have going on in your day. The second type of conversation is really digging deeper into a patient's goals. I wonder if we could actually spend a little time about thinking together about the possibility of you getting sicker so that I can do a good job for you. So asking people permission can actually be a really powerful way to sort of transition to conversation two. If you were getting sicker, what are some of the things that would be most important to you? If time were short, are there things you'd be particularly worried about? So I've often fallen prey to asking super broad questions, like who are you? What matters to you? Which are great questions, don't get me wrong. But sometimes I get an answer like, I want to go to the beach. While my patient has a rising oxygen requirement and is being maxed out on a non-rebreather, it's a beautiful wish to express, but it just doesn't align with the medical context. So I really appreciated how Dr. Lawton prefaces his questions, like if time were short, or if you were getting sicker. And Dr. Nakagawa actually shares similar questions for clarifying goals with his sicker patients. The other key question I sometimes ask is, uh, is there any condition you'd find unacceptable? Is there any condition worse than death? The hard part, though, is while asking questions like, are there any conditions that are worse than death kind of sound great? I can easily see myself getting an answer like, uh, Doc, I, I don't know what you mean. I just think a lot of people haven't thought about specific goals of care before this pandemic. So how do you gently but concretely help patients imagine the decisions ahead of them? I think, Shreya, that's where giving examples can be really helpful. Some patients tell me that if they were getting sicker, they would really want to be with their loved ones, or they would really want to make sure they weren't struggling to breathe. So sometimes giving people examples that they're having a hard time, you know, other patients tell me these types of things. Do any of those resonate with you and what else? And there's another question that comes up. This is from the Serious Illness Conversation Guide developed by Ariadne Labs in Boston. The question I find myself teaching, talking with people that I probably use more now than I did before is the question of, especially in COVID situations where we do find a lot of patients getting more advanced intensive therapy, how much do you think she'd be willing to go through for the possibility of getting more time? But why spend all this time asking questions about worries and goals when it might just be easier to cut to the chase and ask, are you okay being hooked up to a machine? Would you want to go through that? It often sounds like good doctoring or just sort of nice doctoring. Like, you know, tell me what your dad values. 
but what we're actually, you know, or just nice sort of banter and rapport building with the family. But what, what we're actually doing is making an assessment. What we're actually doing is gathering data. And we may, in when we're being our more directive selves, we may actually be putting the story together and interpreting in a way that maybe the family hasn't thought about it before. Okay, okay. So beyond the fact that it's just nice to know your patient's values, this can be helpful for when it comes time to propose a plan that may be the best for the patient. You know, what I hear about your mom is that she was she's a really tough lady and she's been through a lot in her life. And at the same time, um, the grandkids are important to her. Not having, you know, something she dealt with pain for a lot of t- long time, not living in a state of perpetual pain would be important to her. So after summarizing what you've heard, you then make a recommendation based on the patient's medical severities and the values you heard that might lean against the most aggressive care from someone who just wouldn't benefit. I think there's a lot we can do for your mom to try to help her um, her breathing be comfortable, to see if we can get a little bit of time, even if it's while she's sleeping or while she's not fully aware, to have people on the phone. And I think we can provide her with the best care possible. At the same time, I'm worried that there are things that may not help her live longer or better and may contribute to her actually having more struggle if she really is nearing the end of her life from this infection. And I think one of them is placing a breathing tube. It sounds like that may not be something she would have wanted, and I'm worried it might cause her to struggle more. My takeaway from Dr. Lawton here is that when we're making a recommendation, we should start by emphasizing what treatments we can continue and then touch on what we don't recommend. Sometimes when we only recommend stopping things, families might hear us as saying, there's nothing more we can do and think we're giving up on them. But this is not true. There is always something we can do, whether it's for pain or breathing or comfort. And we should show that through our language. I can't agree more, Amrapali. And I think all of this just sounds so great and effortless, particularly coming from Dr. Lawton, who's a pal care attending and has been doing this for years and years. But I gotta be honest, I have been in so many situations where it's not so clear cut from their values to get to that concrete recommendation that's going to resonate with the patient or resonate with the families. What I hear is that for some people it can feel messy. And sometimes people have you know, conflicting hopes or, or worries and hopes that, that don't line up. And it requires us to mine a little bit more deeply for what are the core concerns they have. Yeah. And say, for example, what if your patient's desaturating on like 15 liters non-rebreather, the family can't decide. And in the back of your mind, you just know this patient is going to have a rapid response in the, in the few hours. In these situations, Dr. Lawton points out contingency planning can be helpful. What I hear is that it sounds like if you, if you have the chance of more time, you'd actually be willing to go through a lot for the possibility of getting that more time. So I think it'd be reasonable if you get sicker to try up the breathing tube, try going to the ICU, acknowledging that if it doesn't seem like it's working, we're going to reevaluate. And you know, could we talk about the possibility that what if it wasn't working and what if it didn't seem like you were getting better despite those machines? Could we think about that? This is a good reminder that goals of care is a process. It's not just one conversation at one point in time, but it's something that we should keep reassessing as we build trust with patients and families. But that's the tension we're feeling right now with COVID, where the pace is just relentless. These conversations that might otherwise take place over multiple family meetings over multiple days now might be happening in a single day or a single conversation. And there is so much pressure to resolve everything up front. 
So that's the meaty conversation too, really getting to the heart of goals of care. Then there's a third type of conversation we are often having with COVID, and it's when patients are dying. Could I give you an update? Yes. You know, uh, Mrs. Jones, I'm, I'm so sorry to call you to say I really think that your mom is dying and maybe dying very soon. You, we expect emotion after that, and you know this. This must be just surreal to hear. This must be so overwhelming. I want you to know. Usually at the end, expressing an ongoing commitment. To, we're going to be right here with her. Expressing that ongoing commitment to being there with their loved ones is more important now than ever, especially when families can't be by the bedside and patients are afraid of dying alone. This is a great framework for the three different types of goals of care conversations that you might find yourself having. Now let's jump into a few considerations that are specific to COVID. First of all, how do you have these conversations when time is really short, when someone is rapidly decompensating before your eyes? Yeah. For example, Dr. Nakagawa was recently consulted in the emergency room for an 80-year-old patient with metastatic cancer found to have COVID. She was short of breath, unable to speak, quickly becoming hemodynamically unstable. The ED team all agreed that this patient who is frail with metastatic cancer probably wouldn't survive their chest compressions and wouldn't benefit from intubation. But the family just didn't recognize how sick she was. So Dr. Nagawa spoke to the family over the phone. His approach actually began with sharing the prognosis first and then went into the things that we've already talked about, exploring goals and worries in order to make a recommendation. Basically, I just made it very simple. The first stage is uh, we need to convey the prognosis. Uh, so prognosis in that case, in metastatic cancer with COVID and not breathing well, is basically she's dying. So I just said to the son, I'm going to give you a very, very bad news now and then take a deep breath. And uh, then I told them, you know, your, your mom is dying. And then he left some room for silence. And uh, I said, you know, no matter what we do, we cannot change the outcome. Just make it simple. And then he gave another pause. And then I asked, so what are you most worried about? What I took away was that by starting out with the prognosis, he was unable to frame the conversation so that when he did ask about goals or worries, it was really rooted in how she was doing poorly. And in this case, the family realized that aggressive measures would unlikely be able to help. And the goal of not wanting their mom to suffer did resonate with them. So Dr. Nakagawa was then able to make the recommendation, let's focus on her comfort and help her pass away with dignity. I think like many clinicians, so uncomfortable making recommendations. Many clinicians, I think, ask like yes, no questions when making a decision about the treatment. Do you want us to do CPR? Do you want us to do, do you want us to do chemotherapy? They ask yes, no question. I think that's wrong. I think we should make a, a recommendation based on our expertise. In goals of care conversations right now, there seems to be a tension between autonomy and paternalism. Has the pendulum swung so far in the direction of autonomy these days that we confuse or burden our patients with a series of choices that we haven't equipped them to understand? In an ideal world, we are partnering with families through shared decision-making to provide guidance, which, let's be real, we do all the time with diabetes or hypertension medications. But here, in these most personal, intimate, difficult life choices, 
the stakes feel so high. And that's what I'm hoping uh, I take away and actually implement moving forward with all my goals of care conversations, not just with patients with coronavirus. You know, I think I'm really going to try to focus on making that recommendation in the conversation because I just can't think of how many times uh, I've had patients with end-stage heart failure or end-stage COPD where I just kind of go along with whatever their wishes are or whatever the night admitting resident kind of said and never actually voice what my recommendation is. Part of what's tough about these conversations is the prognosis. I mean, to the point where we actually created a whole episode on the at the bedside segment around prognosis. So go listen to that if you haven't. But I think prognosis with COVID is even more challenging because it's a new disease. I think there's like a new paper coming out every other day. The most recent one that I thought was um, eye-opening was the one uh, study in China where all patients who had a cardiac arrest and actually survived CPR, one month later, all of them had minimal neurologic status. And it was, I think, just so eye-opening for the medical community. So this is something that Dr. Nakagawa will actually make sure he talks about with patients uh, who have coronavirus about the prognosis. He will make sure he kind of brings up the functional status that might be there after CPR. Even if you survive, uh, probably you are not going to be the same functional level. Then I tell the, like, the family, you know, even if your dad survived, probably he's not going to be the same person. Uh, he's not going to be able to, you know, enjoy watching TV at home. Probably he's going to end up in the uh, nursing home with very dependent with all the daily needs. So I think that piece also needs to be conveyed. That's uh, all the, you know, the stage one, like uh, sharing prognosis. So prognosis is tough, and clinicians have such different approaches to expressing it to patients and families. So for Dr. Nakagawa, he doesn't like to give numbers. He likes to say a headliner statement, like, your loved one is doing poorly. In headlining, you're giving a short statement of what is going on now, the main thing you want your patient to walk away with, and then you pause and let it sink in. No, that's really that's really great. But I think if I reflect on what I've done, I think for me, I do like to use a little bit more numbers and I probably say a little bit more in my headliner. For example, I might say, most patients who undergo CPR with your age and your comorbidities don't survive. And I maybe say a little bit more. I think it just gives me mental peace that I did my best to convey just how grave the situation is. But sometimes I think if I'm being brutally honest... I ask myself, am I just kind of scaring patients to choose the code status that I think is best for them? Some of us in our more fumbly code status conversations do it too, right? I don't know if you've heard of this, but sometimes we break ribs and it can be very uncomfortable when the breathing tube goes in. Our intention is good because we just want to help the patient see like it's not really what you want, right? But actually like the language we're using feels a little bit like um, helping them see how risky it is or it's a little bit threatening language, even though we're not trying to threaten anybody. It doesn't actually like feel for most of us like the type of doctoring we wanted to do, right? Like it would feel so much more lovely if we could like help the patient see how their goals match a therapy and then we could be on the same page together. Does that make sense? So we, we sort of want the second one, but I think all of us end up doing something where we're talking about risk because we so don't want the patient to choose the bad option. And at the same time, it's messy work. It is messy work, walking someone through possibly end-of-life care or making decisions that are in line with their wishes, but also realistic for their health. 
On top of that difficult work are challenges related to virtual communication right now. So when you're having goals of care conversations with loved ones over the phone, it helps to begin by first making sure that they're sitting down or if they're driving, ask them if they've pulled over. Oh, I've made that mistake one or two times now. So we can begin by validating the loved one's distance from the patient because of this pandemic. This is such a new thing and we should acknowledge it must be so hard for them to feel this far away. How are they coping? And then, since you can't be face-to-face and observe those good nonverbal cues, it helps to check in deliberately. Is your patient's loved one in tears and backing away from the phone? Or are they staying calm? I'm aware that this is what we're talking about is is really important and for a lot of patients, heavy things to talk about. Um, how, How are you doing in this conversation and and does it feel okay to move forward? Um, So just really transparently checking in and saying, uh, how is this landing with you? Because you might not be able to know any other way. I really like how Dr. Lawton acknowledges the emotion and the weight of doing this conversation over the phone and makes space for that with families. Now, if you're with patients, then there is a whole different set of challenges related to PPE. If you can, try and be level with patients and make good eye contact. I mean, after all, it's the only part of you they can actually see. And consider holding or squeezing a patient's hand so that they know you're not afraid of them. And most importantly, speak loudly because so much gets muffled through respirators. So despite a whole episode trying to improve our goals of care conversation, we do have to recognize that we're still going to encounter situations where we do our best with our communication And things still don't go as we hoped. You know, you pour your heart and soul into that goals of care conversation and it still just didn't resonate. It's so easy to feel defeated. Or on the flip side, feel like it's a win when you did get the code status to be that which you thought was best for the patient. But as much as we can, we need to separate ourselves from the outcome. You know, it's not our job to convince people or feel like a failure if we don't get them to change their mind about their goals. That's right. And it's easier said than done. But the real win should be a thoughtful conversation, one that is direct and empathetic, no matter where it ends up. Dr. Nakagawa reminds us the best way to get good at these conversations is to reflect on what went well and what didn't go as well with a good dose of self-compassion. I think communication needs a skill. In order for you to get better, you have to practice. You have to continue to practice diligently. I think you have to keep practicing and you have to keep You have to remain humble and you have to always reflect. I think that's the only way for you to get better. Having the perfect goals of care conversation can feel like a lot of pressure right now. It's just heavily charged and very weighty because it overlaps with people's personhood and the sickest points in their life and a lot of emotions. And that intensity is causing a huge emotional toll. Maybe you've experienced it yourself this week, or it's all you've been hearing about from your colleagues is probably the time for us to lean into that, you know, weekly team check-in, going to the the virtual debrief, whatever it is, even if that's not normal, you're saying it might be the time to like dip your toe in that a little bit because it may actually be really helpful. You may find that there's a shared experience that you might have guessed was there, but it really feels different when you hear your colleagues talking about it. And it might be that showing up is part of what offers support to your colleagues. And while these goals of care conversations may be quite draining and pose so many challenges, hopefully we're finding meaning in them too, and reminding ourselves why we're showing up to work each day. 
understanding where people are coming from and making thoughtful decisions with them. For most of us overlaps with why we got into this work in medicine to begin with. In my own practice, uh, it you know, helps me feel still filled up at the end of the day because hard as it is, I, I feel like this is what I signed up for. And with that, that is a wrap for today's episode on inpatient goals of care during COVID-19. If you found this episode helpful, please, please, please share it with your colleagues or your team. Look out for an episode on outpatient advanced care planning soon. And if you want more resources to practice, we'll link some in our show notes and resources, but uh, there's a great one with Vital Talk COVID Ready Communication Playbook that we'll definitely put in our transcript. Tweet us, send us a comment on our website, our Instagram or Facebook page. If you want to add anything uh, of your own tips or share challenges, let's all continue learning from each other. Thank you to Dr. Cabo Wang from University of Minnesota for the accompanying graphic, Dr. Mariah Robertson, Dr. Kimberly Bloom Fleshback, Dr. Jafar Almandre, Dr. Cam Kadia, Dr. Sunny Kishore for their input on this episode. To Harit Shah for audio editing this very quickly for us. Um, and thanks to you. And let us know if there's something else you'd like us to cover. If you found this episode helpful, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It does really help people find us. And as always, we love hearing feedback. So email us at hello at coriampodcast.com. Opinions expressed in this episode are our own and do not represent opinions of any affiliated institutions. Goodbye.